Amen. Our sermon text this evening comes from Judges 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Let's look at Judges 8. For now, I'm just going to begin by reading the end of the chapter, verses 29 and the following, 29 to 35. Hear this now, the word of the living God. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the the Abiezrites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Let's please be seated. Let's pray together, ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, thank you for the book of Judges. Thank you for the way that you communicate your truth to us through it. We thank you, especially for Jesus Christ, who has purchased all of his people by his own blood. We pray that we will see him tonight and the need for him tonight as we are even situated in the Old Testament. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if Gideon were a theater production, if his life were a play, there are three acts, chapter 6, the first act, chapter 7, the second, and here, chapter 8, would be the third act. And as you know, as popularly known, Gideon comes from humble beginnings. He's an unlikely instrument that has been used mightily by God. You might expect then, after the great victory in chapter 7, you might expect that here in in this third act to be the happiest. But it's not. There is no happy ever after in this story. It fizzles out. So the orchestra... The third act, they begin just sort of trailing off, and it, and it fizzles, and that by the end of the play, the instruments are out of tune, and it's a rather sad ending. If you've ever been to a play, you know that at the end, it's triumphant if it's a comedy, if it's a good ending, and, and there's often the, the, the most celebratory of music, not so, in the book of Gideon, if we want to call it that. In chapter 6, God called Gideon to root out the Baal worship in the midst of Israel. And that Baal worship, it was in his own backyard, even in his father's house. And Gideon lived up to his name, Hewer, we might call him, by cutting down idols in the land. And Gideon, though he was a weak man, expressed faith in God to deliver him, to deliver his people. 
And in chapter 7, we see more of this faith. Though Gideon needed great encouragement, he follows through in faith. And we see one of the most amazing victories in all of the Bible when Gideon and the 300 men get victory over 100,000-plus soldiers. You recall that story if you weren't here last week, but the Midianites turned the sword on their own selves. Only God could get that sort of victory, and that was God's intention. He wanted Israel to see that he gives the victory. So Act 1, Gideon defeats Baal. Act 2, Gideon defeats the Midianites. Act 3, Gideon is defeated by his own self-sufficiency. It's not how we expected this to go, but it is how it ends. It is tough to end well, as one commentator puts it. And the defeat of the Midianites in chapter 7 was, was so great, it actually becomes a refrain for the, for the people of God. You'll, you'll recognize some of these. Psalm 83, Isaiah 9, 4, Isaiah 10, 6. All of these mention the defeat of Midian by the hands of Gideon. Psalm 83 says this, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera. So he's, the person of God is going to call out to God, Crush my enemies. Do to them like you did to the Midianites. Isaiah 9 for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. It becomes a rallying point. The Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him, like the slaughter of Midian. And yet, in this chapter, chapter 8, God is not mentioned very often. Even after this otherworldly victory, he's not mentioned. And I think that's purposeful. The Israelites do not have God on their mind, and it shows. And slowly, we see the progression in this chapter, over time they fall further and further away from God. And we've talked about it before, but there's a cycle in Judges. In the first half of the book, we see the, the cycle. There is a cycle where Israel rebels, and then they are oppressed by an enemy, and then they cry out to God for help, and God sends a deliverer. Notice this from Dale Ralph Davis. That cycle will end in this chapter. Judges does not follow a recurring cycle of rebellion, repentance, rescue, and rest. Rather, it charts the progressive disintegration of a people who will not serve the God who saves them. So we have a turning point in these chapters about Gideon. Things get worse and worse and worse. And as I've mentioned before, at the end of the book, we have everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. We get a taste of that here. So let's begin this evening. We're going to look at this similar to the way we did it last week, just in, in brief chunks. First, verses 1 to 9. I'll go over a few verses at a time. This is chapter 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. 
So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebiezer? God has delivered you. God has delivered into your hands the princes. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So the context here, we're just kind of picking up in the middle of the battle. This is really the, the, the end of the battle. In verse 1, the Ephraimites, this is a particular group of Israelites. They are not happy with Gideon. Gideon went ahead and went to war and gained a victory without their help. And Ephraim was not the only tribe who did not go out to fight. It was only 300 men who were used to defeat the Midianites. But God's glory is not on their hearts. So this will be our first heading. I'm calling this Israel's shameful response to God's victory. Israel's shameful response to God's victory. God's glory is not on their heart, and it does not matter to them that they won the great victory. Because in Ephraim's mind, they know they will get no praise or accolades for that great victory. And what they really want is is the accolades. They want to be praised. So they reprimand Gideon. Their attitude, their goal is shameful. Imagine for a moment a a football team whose best player gets injured before the big game. And against all odds in the big game, the championship, the team still wins, even without their star player. And after the victory, the injured player is not happy. Why is he not happy? Well, he was not a part of the championship game. And that star player, he wants to be praised I think this is similar to what's going on here. War is much more serious than sport, but the selfish roots in these two cases are the same. Gideon reminds the Ephraimites that the kings he defeated are delivered into their hands. He reminds them, we got victory. And he adds to it, what is this victory compared to what you have done? See, at the end of the battle, the Ephraimites actually captured a few of the leaders. And and Gideon highlights that. Say, look, look what you guys did. You guys, got the, you guys got the bad guys. You got, you got three of them. It's wise on Gideon's part, I think. It's a soft answer. He reminds them also that the produce that they get from gleaning the Midianites is actually greater than all the produce that they themselves harvest. And as the scholar Daniel Block puts it, Gideon flatters the tribe of Ephraim. And he he casts a rhetorical question. What have I done compared to you? So Gideon casts himself low here. He minimizes himself. And the Ephraimites, who are themselves Israelites, are pleased with his response, and their anger is actually subsided. And this is like the players who won the big game, who would say to that star player, well, yeah, we won the championship without you, but really, all the teams that we played up into this point, those were the real opponents. See, you, you, did, you, did, you did a really, really good job. You helped us get here. And he, they're trying to minimize themselves. I think that's right. I think that's good. Gideon is shrewd. He diffuses the situation. However, 
Perhaps here, perhaps bitterness begins to brew inside Gideon. This is subtle, but it's there. The chapter does not say it explicitly, and as we walk through the chapter, we'll see it more and more clearly. But Gideon is not getting the respect he might expect. I think Gideon knows this. The Ephraimites should be thankful for Gideon's leadership. He knows they should respect him, for God has used him mightily. Now let's look at verse 4. Another group of Israelites, this time the men at Sukkoth. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit. So they're still going after the Midianites, finishing them off. And Gideon said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So again, this is the people of God, and how are they responding to God's grace? Putting out a, a stiff arm, aren't they? Gideon's troops are pursuing the Midianites. And the Midianites had fallen into great confusion. And what's left of them is fleeing. And with this new group coming into view, Gideon needs bread for his troops, and they will not give bread to Gideon's troops, their own country people. They will not give them bread. They will not support Yahweh's war. So again, Gideon is disrespected, I think. Perhaps bitterness is brewing all the more. Notice also the last verse of this chapter, if you'll look down with me at verse 34. This is key for our interpretation of the whole chapter. The children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. This is the summary statement. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, which is Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. That's our interpretive clue right there. Israel was not thankful for Gideon. They were not thankful to God. And the response is shameful. And it's a caveat. One little qualification here. It's clear that God wants us to know, to all of Israel to know, that he is the one who gained the victory. That's why he chose to only use 300 men. Another qualification is that the men at Sukkoth, they're, they're perhaps fearful that the Midianites are going to turn on them if they help Gideon. So that's the, that's the context. Nonetheless, their response is shameful. They should be trusting in the Lord. They should be supporting the Lord's army. Now verse 10, Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the people of the army of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. There are 15,000 left, and notice there's that number, 120,000. Now verse 11, Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east. He attacked the army. And he pursued the kings and routed the whole army. So Gideon captures the leaders of the Midianites. And notice in verse 13, 14, and 15, Gideon goes back to the men of Succoth. And he had threatened them just a moment ago. If you do not help me, I will teach you a lesson. And now Gideon goes back 
And it's as if in 13 and 14, Gideon is saying, Aha, I have the leaders, and I have returned to teach you a lesson. And what should Gideon's response have been? In verse 16, we see his response. He took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men a lesson. He beat them, and he tore down their tower, and he killed the men of the city. This is his own country people. How should Gideon have responded? His, his people, people of Israel, have, have not respected him. But as, as Thomas Watson has said, that when people do evil towards us, it gives us an opportunity to do good. He says this, The sins of others work for good as they are the means of giving an opportunity to do good. So here's, here's, here's Gideon, and he has this great opportunity. He has two, two tribes coming after him, and what could he have done in response? Give glory to God. Instead, Gideon takes matters in his own hand. Gideon could have been a great example to them. It could have caused Gideon great sorrow, and he could have exhibited that and said, look at what your rebellion is doing. You're not giving glory to God, but instead, what does it produce in Gideon? Anger. I think there's a lesson here for us. Gideon's trying to prove himself. I think the answer is clear, especially after we read verse 16, and he teaches them a lesson. So anytime we are presented with these sorts of circumstances, we have to remember God is giving us an opportunity to do good, and we need to be careful of that which it produces in us. If it's producing anger in us, we need to be careful. We need to watch out. This may seem like a small thing here at the forefront. Gideon is taking vengeance into his own hands. We're told not to do that. Romans 12 tells us not to do that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Do not repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's the Christian ethic. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Gideon does the opposite. He lets that bitterness brew, doesn't he? And that bitterness becomes anger. That anger becomes outright murder. And later, we'll see, Gideon will continue to spiral downward. Now, he turns, verse 18, to the Midianite leaders. These are not Israelites. These are Midianites. Zaba and Zalmunna. These men are there before him. How's Gideon going to treat them? And there's a curious question in verse 18. Gideon doesn't just straight up deal with them. He asks them this question. What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Where does that come from? We don't, we don't know anything about this until now. And they answer him. As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. 
And then Gideon says, verse 19, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had let them live, I would not kill you. So this is the first time we're introduced to this story. Apparently, some of Gideon's family members had been killed by the Midianites. I notice here, too, that Gideon is not out to glorify God by executing justice. He has the, the leaders here before them. And Gideon openly admits that he would normally, under most circumstances, let these guys go. But I won't this time. Why? Is it for the glory of God? No. You killed people in my own family. So you must die. And this is not how God's people should operate. Gideon should be concerned with justice and grace and mercy and giving glory to God, but he is not thinking of God's glory. He's thinking of his own glory. Verse 20, he says to his firstborn, rise and kill them. We're not sure the motives here on Gideon's part, but his young son would not draw his sword. He was afraid because he was still a youth. In verse 21, the men tell them, rise yourself and kill us. And Gideon rose. He kills them. And notice the next detail. Here the spiral continues. Gideon takes the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. The crescent is likely symbolizing uh, at least one aspect of Baal worship. Gideon goes ahead. He takes the matter into his own hands. He executes them. And it seems, perhaps, that the disrespect is just growing and growing and growing. And so if that ever happens to you, we have to remember, I have to remember, am I robbing God of glory? Because think of Gideon. What, what glory does he really deserve for the battle? He deserves none of it. There were 300 men, and God told him he would only use that many men so that he would get the glory. Why? Because this is what's good for the people of Israel. Verse 22, I'm going to call this um, next heading, Gideon becomes king in his own heart. Gideon does not become king, but he becomes a king in his own heart, in his own way. Verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. So now all these people are killed, and now we're going to turn, and we're going to see that the men of Israel, now that all of this war is over, the people of Israel are going to turn to him, and they're going to say to Gideon, you rule over us. You be our king, both you and your son, your grandson also, for you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon says to them, I will not. Gideon refuses to rule them, and that's a good answer. But I would like to make a request of you, verse 24. I would like each of you to give me earrings from his plunder. Yeah, don't make me king. Don't make me king. God alone is your king. But give me your earrings. Give me your gold. And they give them to him. They spread out a garment, and each man threw it into it, his earrings from his plunder, and the weight of the gold became 1,700 shekels. Besides that, there were crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes. Purple, that color of royalty. 
What are they giving to, to Gideon? And with it, Gideon made an ephod. This is a, a part of the priest's clothing. And he set it up in his city, Orphrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. So think about where we're at now. Gideon has become not simply a bitter man, not simply an angry man, not simply a murderous man. He's become an idolater. He's now setting up false worship for his own people. Do you remember the book of Exodus Exodus 32, when Moses goes up to the mountain, and the people are wondering, what has taken Moses so long? Moses was communing with the Lord, and down below the the mountain, the people are getting anxious, and they say to Aaron, they say to Aaron, come make for us, make for us a God, and what do they use to make that golden calf? It's the earrings, and they pile together their, their earrings, and they fashion it, and out comes the golden calf. This is similar, isn't it? The difference here is that it is Gideon himself who is, who is making, who is molding what would become an idol for the people of Israel. So look at what Gideon has become. Started off well, though he had weak faith, used by God. And now look here at the end of the chapter, the last paragraph or so. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. And he had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. This is also king-like, isn't it? Gideon has refused to be king, and yet he's going to take for himself what becomes a harem. He's got He's got lots of wives. He's got lots of sons. Oh, I've got 70 of them. And notice, too, that he takes this ephod and he takes it to his own house. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to where God has sanctioned. He goes to his own town. Verse 31, he even takes a concubine. And this should be alarm bells for us. And from his concubine, he has a son, and his son's name is Abimelech. And if you want any clue that Gideon has become king, not in name, but in his own heart, he names his son, my father is king. That's what Abimelech means. My father is king. Is that not obvious? And then he dies in a good old age, buried in the tomb, and then notice this this ending, this parenthetical note. As soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel played the harlot with the Baals. So it seems like at least as long as Gideon was living, he was was holding them back from, from, from going all the way over the edge. It seemed like once he died, they jumped right back into things, into Baal worship. With the other judges, what we see is that there is a period of rest. Here we have a quiet for 40 years after the battles with the Midianites, but as soon as Gideon dies, they just go right back into Baal worship. 
And thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from all their enemies on every side. And what we have in Judges chapter 8, not even halfway through the book, this is the last time that we will see rest for the land. And we're only halfway through. So there's a number of applications, I think, here. Firstly, people want to be ruled. Remember when they say, you rule over us. They want a dynasty. They want to be like the other nations. Come on, Gideon, you rule over us, you and your sons. This is like 1 Samuel 8 when they say, oh God, make us like the other nations. Give us a king. God wants to be king for his own people. Samuel laments. And for our purposes, though, let's take something away from this and recognize that the people around us, those without authority, those without rule, those without Christ, they seek for themselves a ruler, don't they? People want more government or they want more authority of some sort. It's in human nature. They want safety. They want provision. Think of this too in parenting. It's good to give your parents, to give your children rather, boundaries. They want to be ruled. They want to be told what to do. It's a kindness to them. Another application, I think, for us is to be cautious of the downward spiral. What started off slowly for Gideon, bitterness and anger, becomes outright idolatry, and he does not end well. And thirdly and lastly, what does Judges teach us probably more than any lesson? Is that we long for a complete judge. We long for the perfect judge. No one is perfect except Christ alone. And there's something here to be desired in every one of these stories, especially starting here with Gideon. We'll see it with Samson. We'll certainly see it in chapter 9 with Abimelech. That no ruler, no judge, no deliverer of God's people will measure up to Christ. For Christ himself is the supreme king, the only perfect king. All of us or a mixed bag. And even God's heroes, even heroes mentioned in that great hall of faith are mixed. When Jesus says that fresh water should not pour forth, rather salt water should not pour forth from a fresh spring, we get the picture. And Jesus is telling us it should be pure. It should be fresh. And yet what we have in Christ is the only person who lived that pure life. The rest of us are mixed, even these great heroes of the faith fizzle out in the end. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for this book of Judges, and I pray that more than anything, it will drive us to see our need for a Savior, that we will long for him, and that we will not put our trust in princes, for even good princes sour Even good princes disappoint. And let us also be on guard, our Lord. Let us not let little sins take root in our lives. 
but help us to persevere until the end. We pray in Christ's name, amen.